Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have a confession to make today. Two confessions, in fact. The first confession is that I have no funny story to open the sermon with. <laughs> and the second confession is that I preached too long in the first service, and I hope to remedy that and bring forth the fruit of repentance in this sermon, this service. <laughs> the Summer Olympics kick off this week, and as you know, there will be an extravagant opening ceremony to kick off the games. And then two weeks from then, there will be another extravagant ceremony to bring the games to an end. And while there are many remarkable things that happen in that two-week period with different athletes performing their feats and running their races. One of my favorite parts of the Olympics has to do with the opening and closing ceremonies. The story that we just heard happens to take place on the 24th day of the seventh month, which doesn't mean much to most of us, but if you dig deeply enough, you will see that it is actually a day that is called the closing assembly of this seventh month in which many remarkable things have happened. I told you last week that the seventh month, at least in the Jewish culture, was a special month full of sacrifices and full of fasting and feasting. And so on this 24th day of the seventh month, a day that is highlighted specifically to point out something for us, you find the people of God gathered before God again to hear his word proclaimed, but also to make confessions of faith and confessions of sin. The 24th day of the seventh month is a special day for many reasons. You remember in the course of this series on Ezra and Nehemiah that we've also dealt with the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. In the book of Haggai, it says that on the 24th day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and God said this to his people. Speak now to all the remnant of the people and say, be strong. Be strong, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the 24th day of the seventh month is significant in the history of God's people. The whole seventh month was marked by special worship services and sacrifices. At the heart of the month was the Day of Atonement, the day in which God declared all of the sins of his people would be remitted and removed from them and that he would receive them as his people. And yet, despite all of the festivities and in spite of all of the forgiveness of sins, in this story we see the people of God gathering on the 24th day of the seventh month, looking like filthy and dirty wretches. In fact, they say, as they cry out to the Lord, we are in great distress. Why would they be in great distress if God has forgiven their sins, if God has welcomed them into his presence? They're in great distress because they are living between the already and the not yet. 
Their sins are already forgiven, but they do not yet feel or see the reality of that grace working its way out into their life. By their own admission, they still, they still feel broken and enslaved. They feel that they are not their own, that they are under the control of others. They are what Martin Luther described as simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified, declared right with God, and yet sinful. They are sinner saints. They are right with God, and yet not right with the world, or at least the world is not right with them. They are like those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, and yet continue to struggle with our sins. And so they appear before the Lord in a very strange way in light of all of the festivities and the forgiveness that they have experienced, they appear before the Lord wearing the signs and symbols of repentance on their bodies and on their heads. Notice that they are wearing sackcloth and earth was on their heads or dust. What's going on here? Well, this is what St. Augustine described as something along the lines of outward invisible signs of an inward and invisible grace. The outside is not quite matching the inside. And yet, they wear the sackcloth and the dust because they're trying to declare something to the Lord about themselves. The imagery signals something to God and to man, and it signals something along these lines. They're saying, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are buried in our sins. We are merely dust apart from your life-giving spirit. Our sins have left us malnourished. We hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Now, I know that we tend to be skeptical and suspicious of such visible and tangible expressions of fasting and repentance, but there is a time and place for these kinds of things, even in our own life and experience. For those of us who doubt or say, I'm not so sure about that, let me remind you that just a few weeks ago, most of you wore black to our Tenebrae service. And three days later, you wore white to our Easter service. Why would you do that? Because you know that visible and tangible expressions of our faith and repentance matter. They matter to us and they matter to the Lord. The people are gathered here for two reasons, to be consecrated by the word of God, but also to make confession. And not just one kind of confession, but two kinds of confession. They confess their faith and they confess their sins. And while we don't see this readily at the beginning of the reading, we discover that the people must have gathered together, assembled before the Lord, and either sat down or bowed down because their ministers come to them and say what seems like, a simple announcement to us when they say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. We're used to being told to stand up or to sit down and without thinking about the symbolism of such gestures. But I want to assure you that this is far more significant than it might seem. Throughout the scriptures, the question is posed again and again, both to God and to man. The question, who can stand in God's presence? Who can stand in God's holy place? It's a question that the psalmist and that the prophets ask again and again. 
And the answer comes back to them, not just anyone and everyone. It's not a matter of come as you are and God will put up with whatever you bring him. No, the answer is given that only those who have clean hands and a pure heart may stand in God's holy place or stand in God's presence, which in itself raises other questions like, how can a sinner make his hands clean? How can a sinner make her heart pure? And you know the answer to that because you've tried. You've tried scrubbing out those bloody spots and they won't come out. You've tried cleaning up your own life and found it impossible to do. So how in the world can anyone stand in the presence of the Lord? And the answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we learn that it is by the power of God's word and spirit, coupled with heartfelt confession of sins and repentance, that God cleanses hearts and cleanses hands and gives people the right to stand up in his presence. So the fact that the, the ministers have called the people to stand is a sign to the people. It's a sign to the people that God has forgiven them, that God is not keeping a record of their sins, that their guilt and their shame have been taken away, that God welcomes them as sons and daughters, not as slaves, not as strangers. It's a sign to them that they have found a place in the heart of God. It's a sign to them that God loves them. And so they confess their faith and they confess their sin. They bless the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. The confession of sin is found in verses 6 through 34, which I will not read today. But that confession of sin was extrospective. It means that they were looking out to God and looking away from themselves from verses 6 to 34, they're emphasizing the blessings of the Lord and all that the Lord their God had done for them. And they spend far more time talking about who God is and what God has done than they do in talking about themselves. I confess to you that I was instructed by that this week. And I was moved to consider the fact that often in my own prayers, in speaking to, to the Lord, I'm telling him all about me. Myself and I. And yet I learn here that the emphasis should be on who the Lord is and what he has done for his people. This confession of faith is a beautiful and powerful adoration of praise to God. And I would encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to take some time to read and reflect on this confession of faith and make it your own. And here's why. Because in reflecting on this confession of faith, you will come to believe and know that our God is ready to forgive. That our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then you will be free to worship and serve the Lord. You will be totally unhindered and un uninhibited from confessing even your deepest and darkest sins to the Lord. Why? Because you're going to see that God is ready to forgive sins. And when you see that God is ready to forgive sins and not ready just to smack you down, but ready to forgive you, then you won't hide from him anymore and you won't hold anything back from him any longer. 
You see it in this story that once the grace and truth of God was revealed to them, they felt that it was safe, that it was even salvific to pour out their hearts and bear their souls before the Lord. And that is why the people were willing to, to appear before the Lord looking as they did, willing to appear before the Lord looking like filthy, dirty wretches. In other words, they were saying to the Lord, this is how we see ourselves in your sight. We see ourselves as filthy, dirty wretches, buried in our sins, that our righteousness is filthy rags. We have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. We're confessing that apart from you, this is what we are, this is what we look like, this is how we feel. And knowing what they knew about God, they were able to confess their sins and the sins of their forefathers. Their confession of faith was extrospective, looking away from themselves to God, but their confession of sin is, as all confession of sin is, introspective. That means that they were looking into themselves, in the knowledge that God is ready to forgive, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, if you were to take time just to do a little navel-gazing navel and explore the the labyrinth of your own heart, apart from that knowledge of who God is and what God is ready to do for you, it would lead you to utter despair and ruin. So if you don't know who God is and what God is up to, don't spend any time navel-gazing. You're going to get lost down there. But if you know who God is and what God is ready to do for you and you understand the attributes and character of God, that gives you a lifeline. To take a peek inside and say, I really am filthy and dirty. I really do need grace and mercy. And there's only one place to find it. And that is in the true and living God. Now between confession of faith and confession of sins, which one do you find more difficult to do? I'm trying, not to hard, trying hard not to make eye contact with anyone. Because, but I know the answer. It's confession of sin. It's a confession of sin. And why is that? It's because it requires us to go on record against ourselves. It requires us to take inventory of our thoughts, words, and deeds. It requires us to acknowledge the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. It requires us to acknowledge our own failures, to admit our own failures, and to aspire to make real changes to get away from our failures. Confession of sin is hard. And yet, you have heard it said, confession is good for the soul. Why is confession good for the soul? Who says that kind of thing? Well, every week when we draw near to worship God, we are encouraged to confess our sins in two ways. Corporately, that's publicly, all together, and then individually and privately, just between us and the Lord. And usually you hear us say, say things like this, that confession is agreeing with God's assessment of your life. That confession is telling on yourself. That confession is telling the Father where it hurts. Or confession is asking Jesus to show you a true and better way to live. Or asking the Spirit to help you make real changes in your life. Confession is acknowledging that something is twisted or broken in your own heart. Confession is a way of asking God for healing. 
But how can, say, how can saying such things be good for your soul? How can using words like that help you at all? We tend to think of ourselves once again when we think of, well, the fact that I'm saying these things or acknowledging these things doesn't mean that I'm going to overcome weakness. No, but when you say those things, you are saying the same thing about yourself that God says about you. And when you say about yourself what God says about you, you've taken a giant step forward into his grace and mercy. Because you're saying the Lord is right, and I was wrong. And that's hard for us to admit, hard to admit being wrong. How can saying such things, how can confessing our sins be good for our soul? A Jewish proverb says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So it's not just a matter of talking about changing, but it's a matter of walking that change in your life. So it's right and good to come clean and to cry for help because when you do that, God promises to meet you in that confession so that you may receive mercy in your time of need. And it is the mercy of God that helps you to change and to cast away your sins and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I'm very thankful that our congregation and our denomination follows the great tradition of confessing our sins corporately and individually. And I want to acknowledge that that's a really good thing and it's a good start, but I want to encourage us to cultivate that more and more. And in order to cultivate that sort of thing, in order to cultivate a truer and better understanding of confession, well, we need to dig a little deeper, don't we? We need to dig deeper into the scriptures and to see what the scriptures say about confession. Now, I get the sense from my pastoral experience and from conversations I've had with people that conversations about confession make some of us very, very nervous. And we get nervous because we know about the abuses. We know how people have used confession in a way that actually injures people and does not help them. So I understand the reservations. I know about the abuses and the problems that can come with it, and I think there's a way out of it. But to show you how deeply I understand this, I want to tell you about a conversation uh, that I had recently. As you know, Pastor Zach and I went up to St. Louis a couple of weeks ago for our denomination's general assembly. Our return flights got canceled, and we were able to hitch a ride with a fellow pastor who secured what was probably the last rental car in St. Louis. And we drove back from St. Louis all the way to Rockwall. And we had a lot of really deep and interesting conversations along the way about things like outlaw country music and our favorite item on the Mickey D's dollar menu. Uh, we talked about fishing, the Enneagram, COVID-19, gospel mission, and other hefty theological matters. And during the ride, and I have to keep this anonymous, but during the ride, one of the pastors said, <laughs> our people come to us and pour out their hearts and confess their sins and their needs. Why don't we do the same with each other? 
Confession is good for the soul, right? And we said, of course, we all agreed to that. So we go on for a couple of miles in silence, and then one pastor says, I have a confession. I like to sip whiskey and stream action movies during my office time at the church during the week when no one's around. And then another pastor said, I like to smoke pipes and do a little online gambling when no one's looking. And the third pastor didn't say anything. And the first two said, hey, we confess something. Why don't you confess something? And he still didn't say anything. So they pressured him some more. And finally he said, okay. And he reluctantly confessed, gossiping. I like to gossip. I like to tell stories that I hear from other people. And I can't wait till we get home so I can tell the stories <laughs> that I've heard in this car. <laughs> the number one reason we are reluctant to confess our sins is fear. It's the fear that someone else will know the truth about us and use that information against us in some way. And so we keep it to ourselves. And it begins to eat away at our conscience and rot away in our bones. But the Spirit of God in the Scriptures teaches us to confess our sins to the Lord in many different ways. Sometimes we confess to God directly as we did in the course of this service today with our public and private confession. We confess to God directly, but sometimes we confess to God indirectly with the help of our ministers and very close companions. Here are four practical ways that we can practice a more holistic confession of sins. The first two are very familiar to you. The second two might not be as familiar, but I want to highlight them anyway. The first one is public confession. Again, this is what we do every Lord's Day. And in that public confession, we do a general confession of sin. You'll know, notice that we don't dig very deeply and it's not very specific. This corporate public confession of sin shows our solidarity and our sympathy with one another as a community of God's people. It's our way of declaring to God and to each other that we know that we are sinner saints in the presence of God. The private confession is what you do during silent confession of sin. That's a more specific confession of sin. I'm sure it's where you might say things that maybe a few other people know, but it's more likely that you're saying things to God that only you and God know about yourself, things that you don't want anyone else to ever hear or know about. And then there's the personal confession and this is what you do with your closest and most trustworthy companions. Several years ago, I went out for coffee with a friend of mine who was not yet a baptized Christian. And in the course of our conversation, he shared his story with me, a story that included his experiences with all kinds of abuse, physical and emotional, in his family. The kind of abuse that led him into a sexual confusion in his own life. And so at one point, as he's confessing his struggles to me, he mentions his struggles with same-sex attraction. And he quickly added, 
If you don't want to keep walking with me on this journey, I will understand. And I reached across the table and I grabbed his hand and I reminded him why I was there in the first place. All you need to know for our purpose today is that his confession opened a door for the gospel of grace to come into his life and to wash over his soul. That's what personal confession of sin will do. It allows you to carry the burdens of someone else. It allows someone else to carry your burdens with you as you walk together under the cross of Jesus. But there's a fourth kind of confession that I want to mention to you today, and that's pastoral confession. Not very common in our day and age anymore, at least in our tradition, but it's something to recover, at least something to reconsider. Pastoral confession is what you do, at least what some of you do, and what more of you ought to do with your pastors. Our Lord's brother James put it this way, is anyone among you suffering? Are you in distress? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, in light of everything you just said, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Several years ago, I was living in a different state, and I got a call from a college student, a young man that I had grown to love, and I was watching him flirt with danger. He was running with the wrong group of people. He got involved with a fraternity. He was drinking too much, partying too hard, doing things that were challenging his faith. He was on the verge of making a wreck of his life. He called me one afternoon crying and asked me to come visit with him. And so I went to his house that he was renting, living with a bunch of other guys. And we sat on his torn up sofa as he poured out his heart to me. And he talked about all the things he had done the night before and the weeks leading up. He confessed it all. He shared things that I didn't know about and things that everyone knew about. And he did it all through tears. And at the end, he said, I know you probably hate me for this. And I said to him what I would say to any one of you. I knew you were a sinner the very first day I met you. <laughs> and the only way out of this mess is for us to go to Jesus together. I reminded him that he was a baptized Christian and what that meant and what God had promised him I reminded him that he needed to come to the Lord's table that week because he needed grace in his time of need. And I expected to meet him there. I reminded him of the need to pray and tried to teach him how to pray. And of the need to be walking in community with other of God's people. So when I talk about pastoral confession, that's what I'm talking about. And I know that some of you have taken us up on this offer. Your pastors have... Opened, we've opened ourselves up to you to say, come and bother us. Get in our life. Make us earn our keep. Get your money's worth out of us. Come and bear your soul and let us 
take care of your soul as we've been called to do. We have an unofficial confessional in the back of the church. Some of you don't know about it, so I'll tell you now. You'll notice in the backyard under the awning there are some chairs in a circle. And we've sat out there and spent hours talking to some of you. As you've confessed your sins and we've cried out to God on your behalf. And I want to encourage all of you to do the same. That we are here to love and to serve you. So take advantage of that because God has appointed his ministers to bring this kind of grace to his people. I've been in ministry a little bit more than half my life now. And I've been in ministry long enough to see a real change among the people of God. In the first half of my ministry, it was not uncommon for people to call me first time there was a crisis, first time there was an issue. I felt like they must have had me on speed dial. And I kid you not, there was an occasion where someone called me before they called 911. And I'm not recommending you do that. I'm simply saying that in those days, that was how people viewed their minister. They needed the minister to be involved. Fast forward a few years and I was coerced into joining Facebook because Facebook was the only way I could keep up with my people, with my congregation. I didn't know what was going on in anyone's life until I got on Facebook and I could see the things they struggled with and when they were sick and went into the hospital and who died. And now I am stuck in Facebook limbo and I need help getting out. Please help me get out of Facebook limbo. In the second half of my ministry so far, I can tell you that more people outside the church than inside the church have sought out this kind of pastoral care that I'm talking about. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Everyone needs a pastor, and God has been gracious enough to give you two, not to mention the members of our session, who are willing and able to serve you in these very ways. So again, call us up. Don't let us be the last ones to know. Don't treat us like EMTs, but bring us in at the beginning. At the closing ceremony of the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin, the mayor of Vancouver, Sam Sullivan, was supposed to participate in the tradition of taking the Olympic flag from the current host city and waving it eight times doesn't sound very difficult, does it? And yet it was impossible for Mayor Sullivan to do because he suffered from a form of paralysis that affected his upper and lower body and that prevented him from waving the flag. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. There, where there's a will, there's a way. And there were people around him who were sympathetic to his plight. And so they came up with a way for him to wave the flag. They rallied around him, they built a special bracket, attached it to his wheelchair, and they could stick the flag in the bracket, and he was able to move his wheelchair in such a way that it was able to wave the flag eight times. He could wave the flag eight times by wiggling his wheelchair back and forth. After the closing ceremony was aired, Mayor Sullivan was inundated with fan mail from around the world. There were people like him who were paralyzed, who were inspired by what he had done, moved by what he had done. There were others who talked about how they were inspired as well, that despite his weakness, he accomplished what seemed to be a great feat. Sullivan said himself that it was a truly humbling experience 
but for many others, it was inspirational. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because I know you hear about confession and you might shake your head and say, yeah, that sounds good. I hope other people do that. You're afraid to expose yourself and to show your weakness and afraid that your weakness might be a hindrance in some way. But there are people who are sympathetic to you who will rally around you and help you wave the flag. Help you wave a flag, whether it's waving the flag of surrender or waving the flag of Christ, your Savior. They'll help you wave the flag, a flag that says, I'm weak, but he is strong. I cannot, but he is able. It's a, it's a flag that will inspire others. I want you to know that when you expose yourself in such a way, that when you cultivate the practice of confession, when you acknowledge your weakness and confess your sins, not only are you doing good for your own soul, you're doing good for the souls of others because you're inspiring them to do the same. So whether you flag, whatever flag you want to wave that day, know that when you wave the flag of confession, you are helping the congregation become a safe place to show scars and to bear weakness and to share stories. You're helping RPC become a house of healing for the weak, for the weak and the wounded among us. And this is what the gospel of grace is all about. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Let us pray together.